As Christians, we believe ourselves to have an eternal destiny. Other creatures on our planet live and die and are no more. But we have been brought into being by an omnipotent creator to know him, love him, and serve him in this world, and to be happy with him in the next. We cannot love someone we do not know, and we cannot serve him unless we know his will for us. The Christian religion is unique in claiming that God himself became man, that God the Son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, was incarnate of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We believe that on the altar of the cross, as priest and victim, he offered himself in atonement for our sins, that he rose again from the dead, and, with the body which had been placed in the tomb, he ascended into heaven to prepare a place for those who follow him. All Christians believe this, but as Catholic Christians we believe something more. We believe that although our Lord Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven, he also remains with us here upon the earth. He is present in the most blessed sacrament of the altar, that is, with his physical body, that very body, Pope Paul VI reminded us, which was born of the Virgin, and which hung upon the cross, and which is seated at the right hand of the Father. Our Lord is also present among us in his mystical body, which is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The mandate entrusted to our Lord by his Father was to save the whole human race without distinction of time and place. This is the mandate which he entrusted to his church, which in its most profound reality is Christ himself, an extension of the incarnation throughout the nations and the centuries. We believe that the mystical body is a visible body with marks which enable us to identify it without erring. It is visible through the profession of the same faith, the use of the same means of grace, primarily the seven sacraments, and subordination to the same authority. These three marks, of course, represent the threefold office of our Lord, which he transferred to his church, teaching, priestly, and pastoral. Our Lord consecrated his apostles as bishops, transmitted his powers to them, and commanded them to teach all nations. Those who heard the apostles heard him. Those who rejected the apostles rejected him. He promised to remain with his church until the consummation of the world. I am concerned tonight primarily with the teaching office of the church, that of teaching mankind to observe all things whatsoever commanded by our Lord. The church cannot fail in its mission, as our Lord will be with it until the consummation of the world, and to ensure that it will not fail in its teaching office, it has been invested with a charism of infallibility. This does not mean that every statement by every bishop or every pope is divinely protected from error. What it does mean is that when the teaching authority of the church, the magisterium, defines a doctrine regarding faith or morals to be held by the universal church, there is no possibility of error. This teaching authority was imparted by our Lord to the apostles and their successors. 
It can be invoked by the Pope, teaching either in union with the bishops or in his personal capacity as the successor of St. Peter and the Vicar of Christ. Such definitions of the Roman Pontiff are infallible of themselves and not from the consent of the Church. This is a very important point. A good number of Anglicans and other Protestants would be willing to accept the papal primacy if all it meant was that the Pope was the chairman who articulated the prevailing consensus of opinion within the Church at a given moment. But this was not the mandate given by our Lord to his apostles. He did not say, Go forth and set up discussion groups, and whatsoever conclusions they shall come to, those shall you teach. He said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. We hear a good deal today about the census fidelium, which can perhaps best be described as an instinct or feeling for orthodoxy among all the members of the church. This instinct protects the entire church from ever falling into error and helps the faithful to accept the definitive teaching of the magisterium. The magisterium is also known as the teaching church and the rest of us belong to the taught church. The existence of the census fidelium most certainly does not mean that the teaching church, the magisterium, must make or unmake doctrine according to the caprices of what might appear to be majority opinion within the church. Speaking in May 1970, Pope Paul VI warned against certain theologians who were doing precisely that. They would like to turn to the opinion of the faithful in order to know what they wish to believe and attribute to the faithful a questionable charism of competence and experience which puts the faith at the mercy of the strongest and most easily voiced choices. All this happens when one does not submit to the church's magisterium, which the Lord willed to protect the truths of the faith. Having mentioned theologians, I had better point out that they do not form part of the magisterium. The function of a theologian is to explain the teaching of the magisterium and draw conclusions from it. The basis of our faith is immutable, but it is always possible to have it explained more clearly or for a legitimate development of doctrine to emerge from the theologian's research and speculation. But it is for the magisterium alone to judge the theories of the theologians. Some it will accept and incorporate into the official teaching of the church. Others it will reject. When this happens, a truly Catholic theologian will submit to the judgment of the Church, but some put more faith in their personal competence than they do in the promise made by our Lord to be with His Church until the consummation of the world. In former times, such theologians left the Church and attacked her from without. Today, alas, they are only too often allowed to retain their positions and attack her from within. The religion teacher in a Catholic school is not a theologian. His task is not to study the opinions of theologians and put their speculations before his pupils, but to help them learn the more important teachings of the magisterium as thoroughly as possible, in a manner consistent with their age and their ability. Obviously I'm taking it for granted that he will try to set his pupils an example of Christian living, to develop sound habits of prayer and piety, 
and to lead them to behave as well as to believe as Christians. But in matters of attitude and behaviour, a child will normally tend to reflect his family background and the prevailing tendencies within his immediate circle of friends. If a child leaves a Catholic school as an indifferent Catholic, it is unlikely that his teachers will be to blame. But if he leaves his school ignorant of the basic teachings of the Church, then there is every justification for considering the religious teaching in that school to have been inadequate. The points I have made so far are fundamental to the thesis of this lecture. Let me summarize them for you once more. 1. Our Lord Jesus Christ founded a visible church to continue the work entrusted to him by his Father, that is, to save the whole human race. 2. The apostles and their successors were given authority to teach in his name. Those who hear them, hear him. 3. The Pope and the bishops united with him have the power to teach infallibly. 4. The magisterium teaches the doctrine entrusted to it by our Lord the deposit of faith. This doctrine, then, emanates from Christ and not from a consensus of the faithful. 5. Our duty as Catholics is to hear and accept the teaching of the magisterium. 6. Theologians perform an important role within the Church but do not form part of the magisterium. 7. The first duty of teachers in Catholic schools is to convey the teaching of the magisterium to the children. Before the Second Vatican Council, it would have been hard to find any English-speaking Catholic, Catholic, theologians included, who would have disputed one of these points. But, nonetheless, there was considerable discussion and debate concerning the teaching of religion, which was not generally referred to as catechetics until the late 60s. The old catechetics, if we can so term it, was known as religious education when I trained as a Catholic teacher in the early 60s. Before then it had been referred to as religious instruction, and earlier still it had been known as catechism. I know that many Catholics are still not sure of the exact meaning of catechetics. The word is derived from a Greek root meaning to instruct or to teach, literally to din into the ears. Why we had to start speaking of catechetics instead of religious education, I don't really know. It reflects a trend in the education world today, never to use a straightforward word if a complex one can be found. Catechetics, then, is simply a trendy name for religious education. And what was religious education like before and immediately after Vatican II? As with most other subjects, it depended on the teacher. It is sometimes suggested that before the Council, the religion lesson consisted of nothing but learning catechism questions and being strapped or caned if one deviated from the formula by so much as a word. Obviously, this is a ridiculous exaggeration. But, from what I have been able to discover, quite a number of teachers did tend to use the catechism as a textbook, which it was never intended to be. There was a strong movement to improve the quality of religious education led by Canon Drinkwater. He produced countless aids to make the teaching of religion more interesting and was severely critical of teachers who used the catechism as a textbook. But, and this is very important, he was never opposed to the use of the catechism. Canon Drinkwater wanted questions from it to be used to consolidate teaching 
that had been given in a lesson or series of lessons using the most effective possible methods and aids to bring the topic to life for children of a particular age group and ability. In this way, the child would learn one or two questions a week, but at the end of ten years in a Catholic school or even Saturday catechism classes, the children would at least know what their faith was. I mentioned earlier that I trained as a teacher at the beginning of the 60s when the Second Vatican Council was in progress. The lectures I was given on teaching method were on precisely the lines advocated by Canon Drinkwater, and we were supplied with a book, Teaching the Religion Lesson, by Father Kevin Cronin, which I still feel it would, it would be hard to improve upon, and it said it all in 94 pages. One could get books by German priests in the same field, which said the same thing in 400 or 500 pages, but that seems to be the German way. I have noted that whatever their theological position, progressive or traditional, German writers seem to believe that a point should never be made in one sentence if it can be made in one hundred. Some excellent series of textbooks were appearing in the USA, but my favourite, despite what I've just said about the Germans, was a textbook emanating from Germany, the so-called German Catechism. It was, in fact, a superb textbook, well-researched, well-written, well illustrated, and I think has never been bettered. It was already available in English in 1957 and had been translated into many other languages. I would like to see it reprinted at once and used as the basis for religion teaching in all our secondary schools, but I don't think this likely. The reason will become clear later. Evidently, this book was not a fruit of the Second Vatican Council, as it appeared before the council had been convoked. I have little doubt that had the council not taken place, we would have had a revolution in the teaching of religion, but a gradual and sound one, which would have brought immense benefits to the church in the English-speaking world. The object of the catechetical movement was to open up the entire richness of Catholic doctrine to people who had only been receiving it in a sadly limited manner, Similarly, there was the liturgical movement, which was making slow but steady ground in bringing the Catholic people to share more fully in the incomparable treasury of our liturgical heritage. There was still much to be done, but definite progress had been made. Then came the Council. It would not be possible to give a balanced appraisal of the catechetical revolution without placing it within the context of Vatican II but we must first place the Council within the context of our times. The greatest problem facing the ordinary Christian is that he must be in the world, but not of the world. He is a citizen of heaven, and only a sojourner upon the earth. But all too often, he has to live in a society which is not predominantly Christian. He cannot help being influenced by the predominating trends within that society, and these almost invariably conflict with the demands of the faith. This problem has always been particularly acute for Catholics involved in any way with the intellectual life of their times. In his popular history of the Catholic Church, Monsignor Philip Hughes notes that already by the end of the third century, we are seeing the appearance of types that will never cease to reappear throughout 2,000 years. Catholics who propose to explain Catholicism by synthesis with the intellectual life of the time.
This problem has never been more acute than it was for Catholic academics at the end of the 19th and in the early 20th century. Protestantism was already being undermined, particularly in Germany, by a destructive form of biblical criticism which attacked the very basis of Christianity. Not only was doubt cast upon such fundamental doctrines as the resurrection, but, eventually, God himself was reduced to no more than a symbol of the collective aspirations of mankind at any particular epoch. God was a projection of humanity's ideal view of itself, and as this view changed, so did God. The movement initiated by the German critics spread to France and gained a notable convert in Joseph Renan, who had been a seminarian. These critics, Renan maintained, had forced Jesus to renounce his divinity. A number of priests felt that in order to retain its credibility, the Church needed to accept at least some of the findings of the higher criticism, as it was known. This resulted in the modernist movement, and many of its proponents were certainly sincere in their desire to serve the Church by modernizing her teaching. This, they felt, was the only way she could survive. But much of the higher criticism was totally incompatible with the defined teaching of the Church. Well, explained the modernists, the truth of this teaching is relative. It was true for Catholics in one epoch. It expressed what they felt about Jesus. But it would be wrong to impose these beliefs on Catholics of another century as obligatory for membership of the Church. Before long, the leaders of the movement were resorting to duplicity, to retain their influential positions while holding beliefs incompatible with the faith. St. Pius X condemned the modernist movement with the encyclical Pascendi in 1907. Its leaders were excommunicated and soon proclaimed openly the heresies they had believed secretly. But had the Pope not acted firmly, this most dangerous of heresies would have spread like a virus throughout the Church. St. Pius X had suppressed the external expression of modernism, but modernists still remained within the Church, waiting for their day to come. The resurgence of what we can term neo-modernism had become so serious after the Second World War that Pope Pius XII felt it necessary to issue an encyclical, Humani Generis, warning the bishops of the world of certain false trends which threatened to sap the foundation of Catholic teaching. This encyclical is still in print and is essential reading for anyone wishing to understand what is happening in the field of religious education today. In 1950, the opinions condemned by the encyclical were circulating in a semi-clandestine manner among theologians. Today, they provide the basis for the religious instruction given even to our very youngest children. Doubt, Pope Pius XII warned us, was being cast upon the existence of angels, the teaching of the Council of Trent on original sin, and indeed sin in general considered as an offence against God. It was being suggested that the doctrine of transubstantiation should be revived in a manner which would make the presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist a symbol and no more. It was even suggested that the mystical body of Christ and the Catholic Church were not synonymous. Those subscribing to these errors, the Pope explained, were motivated by an attitude of false ecumenism, 
a burning desire to break down all the barriers by which men of good will are now separated from one another. Some had too ready an ear for novelties and were afraid of seeming ill-informed about the progress which science has made in our day. At any rate, they are eager to emancipate themselves from authority, and the danger is that they will lose touch by insensible degrees with the truth divinely revealed to us, leading others besides themselves into error. They are eager to emancipate themselves from authority, the Pope had warned. A changing attitude to authority is the basis of many of the problems in religious education today. Remember the date when Pope Pius XII wrote Humani Generis, 1950. It was soon after World War II and during the repressive period of Stalin. The fascist dictatorships which had just been overthrown had given a bad name to any form of authoritarianism, even to the concept of authority. Democracy was all the rage. One must not dictate to people. One must consult them, dialogue with them, give them what they want. Many European theologians had lived under Nazi occupation, and their dislike of authoritarianism is hardly surprising. This democratic attitude is even more marked today in almost every sphere of political, educational and commercial life someone is consulting someone about something and there is not much point in carrying out a consultation if you intend to ignore the eventual consensus. But the Catholic Church is not and cannot be democratic particularly where doctrine is concerned. The magisterium of the Church teaches us with the authority of Christ a living voice which will give us an authoritative interpretation of the truths which have come, come down to us in the twofold spring of Scripture and tradition. It is not for the faithful to decide for themselves what they will believe and how they will behave. Their duty is to listen to the magisterium, which is to listen to Christ and to accept what the magisterium teaches. This is an unpopular attitude, but it is the only authentically Catholic attitude to legitimate authority within the Church. I shall not say much about the Second Vatican Council. Quite why Pope John XXIII decided to convene it, no one knows. He claims that it was the result of a divine inspiration. Others have suggested that the elderly pontiff did not like being thought of simply as a stopgap pope and call the council to ensure himself a place in history. Well, he certainly achieved that. He spoke of opening up the windows of the Vatican to let in a little fresh air. But the effect on the church is as if a tornado had smashed through it. Cardinal Heenan told us that the Pope and most of the council fathers shared an illusion that they had come together for a short convivial meeting. God was merciful in allowing Pope John to die before witnessing the results of his decision to hold a council. I must make a distinction here. It is the distinction between the council itself and the council as an event, and this is an important distinction. We will first consider the council in itself, that is, in the teaching found in its 16 official documents. These documents contain much sound and even inspiring teaching, but some are banal and full of platitudes, and in some places there are unfortunate ambiguities. 
there was considerable tension between the conservative and progressive fathers, and where agreement could not be reached, compromise texts were drawn up, which each side could interpret in its own way. Where Pope John XXIII was concerned, there was no question but that his council should uphold orthodoxy. In his opening speech, he stated, The greatest concern of the ecumenical council is this, that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously to transmit that doctrine pure and integral without any attenuation or distortion which throughout twenty centuries notwithstanding difficulties and contrasts has become the common patrimony of men. That was the Pope's intention. The result was somewhat different. I often wonder, wrote Cardinal Heenan in 1968, what Pope John would have thought had he been able to foresee that his council would provide an excuse for rejecting so much of the Catholic doctrine which he wholeheartedly accepted. The solemn closure of the council took place in December 1965. By 1967, Pope Paul VI was so alarmed at tendencies appearing throughout the church that he spoke out in terms reminiscent of St. Pius X in the encyclical Bushendi, to which I have already referred. St. Pius X described the original modernists as partisans of error, working within the very bosom of the church where they put into operation their designs for her undoing. Pope Paul VI lamented the fact that in the very bosom of the church there appear works by several teachers and writers who, while trying to express Catholic doctrine in new ways and forms, often desire rather to accommodate the dogmas of the faith to secular modes of thought and expression than be guided by the norms of the teaching authority of the church. In 1968, Pope Paul VI stated openly that these deviations from orthodoxy were being justified in the name of Vatican II. It will be said that the Council authorized such treatment of traditional teaching. Nothing is more false if we are to accept the word of Pope John who launched that aggiornamento in whose name some dare to impose on Catholic dogma dangerous and sometimes reckless interpretations. Sadly, with very few exceptions, Pope Paul VI tended to, tended to do no more than lament abuses. If he had followed the example of Pope St. Pius X and excommunicated those who refused to return to orthodoxy after repeated admonitions, then the situation of the Church today might be very different. There is a paradox here, a tragic paradox. While Pope Paul VI deplored the abuses and deviations from orthodoxy perpetrated in the so-called spirit of Vatican II, he was inhibited from taking effective action because, in his own way, he was a prisoner of that very same spirit. I will try to explain why. I have already said that we can consider the Council in two ways, in itself and as an event. It was the Council as an event which was primarily responsible for generating the ubiquitous and iniquitous spirit of Vatican II. I have shown in my book Pope John's Council, and I think that few if any commentators on the Council would dispute this, 
that the most influential people at Vatican II were not the council fathers, the bishops, but the expert advisors they brought with them, the Pariti. This was certainly the opinion of Douglas Woodruff, the outstanding Catholic journalist in England during the post-war era, and the editor of the tablet when it was a Catholic journal. Vatican II, he wrote, has been the council of the Pariti. Peritus, plural Pariti, is the Latin word for an expert advisor. These were the men brought to the council by the bishops to offer them expert theological advice. In the case of some of the more prominent European theologians, they were the very men against whom the encyclical Humani Generis had been directed. But their views were precisely the views which representatives of the media covering the council found sympathetic, the very views which coincided with the spirit of the post-war era, dialogue rather than condemnation, consultation rather than authoritarianism, man rather than God as the focus of our attention. Some of the Pariti were given a pop star build-up in the media, Hans Kung provides a typical example. He and those who thought like him were presented as fearless champions of freedom and enlightenment, men who would save the church by making it relevant to the second half of the 20th century. And by relevance, they meant that the church must adopt as its principal concern those priorities currently preoccupying the leaders of secular thought. I will go into some detail on this point later, but at present I will content myself with remarking that this meant that the Church must have as its primary concern not life in the next world, but life in this. The Church must focus the attention of its members not on avoiding sin and practicing virtue in order to avoid hell and attain heaven, but in combating poverty, injustice and inequality wherever they are to be found. And in striving to achieve these objectives, Catholics must work with men of any belief or none. Thus, not even communism could be condemned. 450 of the fathers attempted to have a specific condemnation of atheistic communism included in the Constitution on the Church in the modern world, but their identically worded amendments were suppressed by an act of calculated and arrogant fraud and could not be debated. To the best of my knowledge, there has not been a specific condemnation of atheistic communism by the Vatican since the Council. The attitudes I have been describing are not found primarily in the Council documents, although they can be discerned there with the help of hindsight, particularly in the Constitution on the Church in the modern world. No, these attitudes became widespread as a result of what I have been describing as the Council as an event. The liberal Pariti, some of whom later made it clear that they were neo-modernists, were able to spend months together in Rome during the years of the Council, living in great comfort at the expense of the ordinary faithful. Instead of being somewhat isolated individuals, often under, under suspicion, who needed to express their ideas with great caution, they found themselves among dozens of like-minded theologians and, moreover, the heroes of the hour. They were idolized by the media. They were soon having discussions, official and, and unofficial, with theologians from other countries, 
and even giving lectures to the bishops. They were the men who drafted the documents for which the bishops voted, and, as Bishop Lucy of Cork and Ross, Ireland complained, the Pariti were in reality more powerful than the bishops. They did not, as I have already explained, succeed in getting many of their ideas spelled out explicitly in the council documents. But, sadly, and I say this in all seriousness, the council in itself, in its official documents, was of far less significance for the future of the church than the council as an event. Hundreds of theologians and bishops returned to their own countries in 1965 with a totally different attitude to the faith than they had brought to Rome in 1960. They wouldn't dispute this. In fact, they would glory in it. They were men who had seen the light. Bishop William Adrian of Nashville, Tennessee in the USA notes how first the American theologians and then many of the bishops were converted by the European Pariti. Some conservative American bishops, he wrote, following their second-rate Pariti, joined the revolutionary group to bring about whatever their mentors thought best. The European Pariti, who really imposed their theories upon the bishops, were themselves deeply imbued with the errors of Tyardism and situation ethics, which errors ultimately destroy all divine faith and morality and all constituted authority. Bishop Adrian then drew attention to the error which lies at the basis of the confusion in the post-conciliar church, an error which also lies at the basis of the catechetical crisis, an error to which I have already referred several times. Please pay particular attention to these words of Bishop Adrian. They make the person the center and judge of all truth and morality, irrespective of what the church teaches. It is the root of the evil of this disrespect for authority, divine and human. The bishop was correct. The person becomes the center and judge of all truth and morality, irrespective of what the church teaches. Man, not God, becomes the ultimate arbiter of truth the ultimate arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. Let me quote you a few more words from Bishop Adrian. These liberal theologians seized on the council as the means of decatholicizing the Catholic Church or pretending only to de-Romanize it by twisting words and using Protestant terminology and, and ideas they succeeded in creating a mess whereby many Catholic priests Religious and laymen have become so confused that they feel alienated from Catholic culture. These words were written in 1969, but I am sure that they express what many of us feel, that is, totally alienated from what is presented to us today as Catholic culture. We simply cannot recognize it as the faith of our fathers, we cannot recognize this faith in most of the religious textbooks imposed upon our children in so-called Catholic schools today. We cannot recognize it in what is imposed upon us as Catholic liturgy in many of our churches. We cannot recognize it in the prefabricated socio-political pseudo-religious claptrap emanating from the National Pastoral Congress under the guise of Catholic opinion. Let me add a word of comfort here. 
If you feel distressed and alienated at so-called Catholic culture today, then do not be upset. You have nothing to worry about. If there is anyone here tonight who doesn't feel alienated and distressed, then heaven help him. He really needs to worry. And what is the justification for all these aberrations? There is a blanket response to any complaint you will make. You are opposing the Second Vatican Council. Bear in mind that by 1968, Pope Paul VI had protested publicly at the already established practice of invoking the Council to justify dangerous and sometimes reckless interpretations. In many cases, a change imposed in the name of the Council is diametrically opposed to what the Council actually mandated. I will restrain myself from going into great detail on the extent to which this is the case where the liturgy is concerned. Do you regret the fact that in many of our churches Gregorian chant has been replaced by hymns in what purports to be a folk idiom, often with words and music of an almost heroic banality? Dare to complain and you will be castigated as an anti-conciliar rebel. But did you know that Vatican II actually ordered that Gregorian chant should become the norm for sung masses? Did you know that there is not one word in any conciliar document ordering or even recommending the entire mass in the vernacular, mass facing the people, standing for communion, communion in the hand, lay ministers of communion, thrusting the tabernacle aside into an obscure corner? But for those imposing these changes, what the council actually taught, or what the council actually ordered, is of no importance. What is important is that we act in the spirit of Vatican II. And who interprets this spirit? Why, they do, of course. As I remarked earlier, a conscientious teacher should be open to new ideas, but should examine them critically. And I think this is how most teachers approach the new catechetics. One Catholic headmaster, an active member of the Catholic Teachers' Federation, wrote in 1973, Initially, the majority of teachers were only too ready and anxious to study or to try out new methods in religious teaching. But grave distrust arose once it became clear that many of those in charge of catechetics were hell-bent on changing much more than methods. Students arriving at one college for a catechetical course were told, you have come here thinking that you are going to learn new methods. You are going to learn new doctrines. There you have it. That is what went wrong with the new catechetics. It began as a praiseworthy attempt to improve methods, but soon began to teach new doctrines, a new religion in fact, a religion that was radically incompatible with the Catholic faith founded by our Lord Jesus Christ. The manifest intention of the new catechists to teach a new faith rather than new methods was, of course, not confined to this country. In point of fact, Britain comes somewhat late onto the scene, and our new catechists were doing little more than follow trends set in Europe and the USA. In Europe, the two countries in which the most radical departure from Catholic orthodoxy was evident were France and Holland. But it is to Holland that we must look for the prime source of doctrinal deviation in the English-speaking world. I am speaking, of course, of the notorious or glorious Dutch Catechism, depending on your point of view. Cardinal Heenan has remarked that in the 60s, some Dutch Catholics had made almost a religion of ecumenism, 
impatient of any doctrinal differences, they were ready to barter any doctrine in the cause of external unity. The appearance of the Dutch Catechism in 1967 provoked such scandal that the Vatican was forced to act. A commission of cardinals appointed by Pope Paul VI found it deficient on the following questions. Please note them carefully and please bear them in mind as most of the defective textbooks in the English-speaking world are derived directly or indirectly from this source of error. Here are the doctrines it failed to present adequately. 1. The existence of angels. 2. Original sin. 3. The immaculate conception. 4. The satisfaction made by Christ. 5. The sacrifice of the cross. 6. The sacrifice of the mass. 7. The Eucharistic presence. 8. Transubstantiation. 9. The infallibility of the church. 10. The role of the priesthood. 11. The teaching authority of the church. 12. The blessed trinity. 13. The efficacy of the sacraments. 14. Miracles. 15. Souls in purgatory. 16. Certain points of moral theology including the presentation of conjugal morality. Please consider this list for a moment or two, and please consider the fact that the authors felt able to publish it within only two years of the closing of Vatican II. Here is a verdict on the catechism delivered by Professor J.P.M. van der Plukopi, one of the dis most distinguished living scholars in the, Never in the Netherlands. He's a biblical scholar of international repute and a leading authority upon the Dead Sea Scrolls. He is also a very brave man. His consistent defense of orthodoxy in Holland has won him no awards as the most popular priest of any year. Indeed, there is a very strong element of nationalism in the Dutch situation today. Many Dutch Catholics now see the conflict as one between the enlightened, fearless, freedom-loving Dutch and the reactionary, obscurantist Romans. To be an Orthodox Catholic in Holland now is almost akin to being a traitor. Professor van der Plucke has told me in person of the abuse and harassment he has had to endure. This is his assessment of the Dutch Catechism. The Dutch Catechism is, from one end to the other, a manual of modernism, for which it aims to win an acceptance everywhere. In order not to alarm its readers, the true import of its teaching is frequently concealed by deceptive and ambiguous phrasing, although at times the authors have the insolence to flaunt it openly. The Dutch Catechism has already caused incalculable harm throughout the world, as a Roman cardinal confided to me recently. That, by the way, is a common feature of the new catechetics, that, that uh, the true import of its teaching is often concealed by deceptive an ambiguous phrasing. Evidently, the finding of the Commission of Cardinals endorsed this very strong condemnation by Professor van der Ploeg. The Vatican did not order that the book should be withdrawn from circulation and the authors subjected to censure. Personally, I'd have had them burned at the stake, but uh, <laughs> yeah, at least I feel they might have been censured. But... It provided a series of detailed amendments to be incorporated into the text. Here again we see the spirit of Vatican II in action. 
No doubt the Pope feared the consequences of an open conflict. Rome has always been reluctant to take action which could lead to an open schism. And what was the reaction of the authors? They refused to incorporate the amendments into the text. English, French and German translations were hurried into circulation. Once more the catechism was not condemned, another compromise was offered. And this time the authors accepted it. The Vatican asked them to add the corrections as a supplement to the book, and they agreed. So that the final result was that this compendium of doctrinal poison could be circulated, providing it was accompanied by an antidote, which the reader could take or not take as he saw fit. In my opinion, the situation was now worse than the p before, as the book was circulating with the permission of Rome, which gave it a veneer of respectability, and considerably undermined the case which Orthodox Catholics could make against it. I'd better add, for the sake of accuracy, that its official title was A New Catechism, which is only appropriate as it taught a new religion. The Dutch Catechism was written for adults, but as I've already stated, it became a model for countless textbooks for adults and children. It would be hard to find a syllabus for Catholic schools in any diocese in this country where it is not recommended as a source book for teachers. One positive result of the critique made by the Cardinal's Commission was that it provided a yardstick by which new textbooks could be judged. When complaints are made concerning some of the new series which are being foisted upon teachers by high-pressure sales techniques, a typical response is to ask the person who complains to point out the heresies. But in most cases, there are none or at least they are not explicit. But a book purporting to present the Catholic faith in which the 17 points I listed are either not presented at all or are presented ambiguously can certainly be termed implicitly heretical. I do not know of a single series of books being recommended by official catechetical centers in this country in which all or even a reasonable number of these doctrines are given adequate presentation. I'll say more about this later. The original feelings of unease expressed by individual teachers or parents in this country gradually began to be made public, firstly in what can only be described as a Samizdat press. So in case anybody doesn't know that, that's the underground press in Russia, which is usually uh, duplicated or, or at least printed illegally and passed more or less from hand to hand. First in this field, to the best of my knowledge, was approaches, this journal is edited now by Hamish Fraser and began as a joint venture with Geoffrey Lawman in 1965. It is still growing strong today. The debt that English-speaking Catholics owe to Hamish Fraser cannot possibly exaggerate it, and yet I fear it goes largely unrecognized. Articles from approaches have been reproduced in many languages all over the world and, more importantly, have led to practical initiatives in defense of orthodoxy. But the fact that an active resistance to the new catechetics quickly emerged in our country was also due in no small way to the Latin Mass Society. The relevance of the Latin Mass Society to the resistance to the new catechetics is that it was founded while the, society, while the Council was in progress in April 1965 to resist an erosion of our Catholic heritage being carried out in the name of the Council but which the Council had not mandated. It brought together a large number of Catholics, including some of the most distinguished laymen in the country, 
Sir Arnold Lunn was the first president, who were able to appreciate that changes that came with official sanction could in fact be detrimental to the faith. This was a totally new departure for British Catholics who had been distinguished for their docility in the face of authority. Many of those who became active in resisting the new catechetics were also members of the Latin Mass Society, and they were people who could not be cowed simply by the invocation of authority. Thus, when they complained about a syllabus which was defective on a number of points, they would not withdraw their criticism simply by being told that the bishop had approved it. I shall say more about this later. On a personal note, I could add that my own involvement in various aspects of the struggle for orthodoxy began by joining the Latin Mass Society and by being introduced to approaches by two lady members who discovered that I was a teacher. In a way, it was my Damascus. When I read that particular issue, everything became clear and a number of apparently unrelated points which had been troubling me all fell into place. Thus, had it not been for approaches or for the Latin Mass Society, I would never have written anything at all. And I'm sure there would a number of, be a number of people who wouldn't be too displeased at this. <laughs> Another important day was Wednesday, the 21st of February, 1968, when the Catholic Priests Association was founded. The secretary was Father John Flanagan. He was a very good friend of mine, though we didn't always agree and even his best friends wouldn't have claimed that he was a model of tact. The 27th of March marked the 7th anniversary of his death, and a tribute to him appeared in the In Memoriam column of the universe. It described him as a gallant and well-loved priest, a gentle pastor, yet a fearless fighter for the dignity and honour of his God and the truth of his faith. I am sure that all who knew Father Flanagan will subscribe to these sentiments. I first met him at a meeting which took place on Monday the 12th of May 1969 at the Commonwealth Society's building in Northumberland Avenue. I consider this meeting to have been of great importance in the fight for orthodoxy. I see at least one person here tonight who was here then. Its purpose was to launch the publication of a book by a Carmelite theologian from Australia, Father Patrick J. Gearan. The title of the book was The Wheat and the Cockle. Some of you may be fortunate enough to own it. It contained a foreword by Bishop Bernard D. Stewart of Sandhurst, Australia, wholeheartedly endorsing the message of the book, which is basically the message I've been giving you tonight. There is a spirit of revolt abroad, wrote Bishop Stewart. It is part of the present social sickness and carries dangers beyond reckoning. Bishop Stewart wrote these words in 1968, and each succeeding year has endorsed their prophetic nature. Where the defense of the faith is concerned, I have no doubt at all that Bishop Stuart will be seen as the St. John Fisher of this era, a St. John Fisher for the entire English-speaking world. Bishop Stuart has retired now from his diocese, at least, but by no means from the fight. If you subscribe to Christian order, you'll be well aware of this, and if you don't subscribe to Christian order, then you ought to at once. <laughs> Having mentioned this magazine, I'd better say a few words about it. I'm afraid this, this lecture seems to be turning into a kind of progressive loving, so I hope you won't mind that. The progressives, that's the new catechists and the new liturgists, they have a marked uh, penchant for meetings and conferences where they spend most of their time praising each other and saying what wonderful people they are. Well, 
I can't see why we shouldn't do it for once. <laughs> Especially in our case, it's true. But <laughs> Christian Order began publication in 1961. It was primarily concerned with the social teaching of the church, but Father Crane soon became involved with developments in religious education and the liturgy. I recollect when he was rallying his readers for a great effort to bring his circulation up to 3,000. It really can be done, he assured them, and it was. And at a time when most Catholic journals have declining circulations and many have closed down, Christian Order is now in the area of 10,000 readers without any subsidies, any advertising, or any support in high places. I know that thousands of Catholics in this country would not mind being described as Christian Order junkies, and that the high point of each month is the day that their little brown envelope comes through their letterbox and they get their regular Christian Order fix. Not least among the merits of Christian order is that it proves to its readers that they are not alone. They are not eccentric in feeling the way they do about the destruction of so many Catholic traditions. It is an absurd and detestable shame, wrote St. Thomas Aquinas, that we should suffer those traditions to be changed that we receive from the fathers of old. That is the message which Christian order brings to us each month. I have, however, digressed from the meeting at the, meeting at the Commonwealth Society in 1969. Father Flanagan was not the only speaker. Major Patrick Wall MP also spoke. Major Wall, now Sir Patrick Wall, was soon to found the Pro Fide movement. And this, more than any other factor, served to bring the catechetical debate out into the open. The reason I believe this meeting to have been so important is the same one I've just given for the great value of Christian order. The hall was packed out. Those concerned for orthodoxy found that they were not alone. The movement obtained a great impetus and has not looked back ever since. My own involvement began like the career of Coco by a set of curious chances. I wasn't liberated from the county jail, though, I had attended a series of lectures at the Southwark Diocesan Catechetical Centre given by Father Telford, who was the director. I thanked him for basing his lectures on the credo of Pope Paul VI. I should have mentioned this document before. It appeared in 1968 and was a restatement by Pope Paul VI of the basic truths of our faith, which had been questioned in the Dutch Catechism. It could and in fact was seen as his answer to that compendium of modernism. Some weeks later, Father Telford asked me if I would give a talk on sex education for him. Moves were afoot to introduce sex education to Catholic schools. He didn't like it, but he had been told to have a discussion on the topic at the centre. Needless to say, a nun spoke in favour of introducing it. My talk seemed to go down quite well. It was much briefer than tonight's, uh, but uh, one teacher suggested that I send it to the universe. I did this, and to my surprise, it was printed. Even more to my surprise, I was invited to lunch with the editor, who told me that it had received the largest and most favourable response to any feature they had ever published. So he asked me to write something else. On the 29th of May, 1979, the Universe published another article of mine entitled, Whatever Happened to the Religion Lesson? And my word, didn't that set the cat among the pigeons? At first, the editor was delighted as it brought an even larger favourable response than the previous one. 
but then it attracted some unfavorable letters from what are known as leading catechists, particularly those from Corpus Christi College. This was an institute which Cardinal Heenan had established in Denby Road in West London in 1965. I've been told, I haven't got this in the text, which I understand is going to be published, but I'll say off the record, I, I've been told that uh, there were three priests at St. Edmund's College where uh, one called Charles Davis, he, without an E, he was an English Davis, uh, and uh, Father Hubert Richards and Father Peter de Rosa, who were teaching in the seminary, and they'd been giving such alarming ideas to the students that a lot of the Darson priests had complained, and Hot Cardinal Heenan had to get rid of them. And so he said, well, they can't do any... He said, I'll make Charles Davis editor of the Clergy Review, and the other two can't do much harm giving a few lectures to the teachers. <laughs> but anyway, as I said, he established it in Denby Road in West London in 1965, and it soon became a cause of controversy. Firstly, for the dubious orthodoxy of its teaching and secondly, for the extent to which it became a matrimonial agency <laughs> for the priests and nuns attending the courses. <laughs> I hadn't mentioned the college or any of the lecturers by name in my article, but it was claimed that my article was aimed at them, which was perfectly true. <laughs> One of these lecturers, Sister Ruth Duckworth, demanded frank dialogue rather than <laughs> criticism of unspecified persons. Since then, I've always specified the persons I've been criticizing, and, believe it or not, this has resulted in my being accused of making personal attacks. <laughs> so, well, the catechetical establishment was in a furore. Father David Constant, advisor on religious education in the Archdiocese of Westminster, was delegated to make a reply, which he did. He was probably disconcerted at the response to his article, which was, in general, very critical. Worst of all, Father Telford, my own catechetical director, wrote a long letter to the universe rebutting Father Constant, which was really more than the authorities could stand, and the correspondence was brought to an abrupt halt. I then received a request from Hamish Fraser to write something for approaches on the subject of catechetics. At any length I cared, he said. And it's a mistake to ask me to write or speak uh, uh, at any length. And he received a piece 204 pages long which he published as the dossier on catechetics. I still find it hard to believe the impact this had. Hamish had to keep reprinting it and requests for it came from all over the world. Most important of all, Major Wall and the Pro Fide Committee then wrote to the Catholic Herald on the 22nd of January 1971 not endorsing the dossier but demanding that the issues it raised should be faced up to and debated. The principal issue, Major War said, was as follows. Mr. Davis says that the faith of our children is being endangered. Is this true? There was most certainly a public debate, and it was not confined to the Catholic press, but had re repercussions in secular journals as well, including the Times. I had listed ten prominent proponents of the new catechetics and the dossier, and this provoked particular outrage among the progressives. Accusations of heresy hunting soon followed. As it happens, I hadn't accused anyone of heresy, simply of presenting the faith in an inadequate fashion. The debate was long and fascinating. <coughs> Having read through it once again in order to prepare this lecture, I'm inclined to think that it should be published one day. I'll give you a brief idea of the alliance it followed. But first, I must mention another important document which had appeared in 1971, the General Catechetical Directory. 
It emanated from the sacred congregation for the clergy and listed 31 basic points of doctrine which should be included in a satisfactory Catholic syllabus. The list included those points I have already mentioned which were found wanting in the Dutch Catechism. The approach followed by the critics of the new catechetics was almost invariably factual. We were challenged to give chapter and verse for our allegations. We did so. Profide brought out a number of documents doing this, including one entitled Doctrine in Catechetics, which made a detailed analysis of 12 texts and syllabuses in the light of the directory. The Vatican says these doctrines should be taught. They are not being taught. That was the basic profidi approach. The response of the new catechists tended to be emotional. I cannot recollect a single occasion on which they attempted, attempted to prove profide and their other critics wrong on a point of fa fact. Among these critics, there was now the very active faith movement, led by Father Edward Holloway and Father Roger Nesbitt. The new catechists used the tactic of accusing their opponents of various offensives, principally being uncharitable. They also accused them of being against Vatican II, not understanding the catechetical movement, not understanding the theology, and being negative. Unfortunately, the general reaction of bishops, in public at least, was to side with their catechetical directors. This is not surprising, as they, the catechetical directors had been appointed by the bishops, had taught with the authority of the bishops, and hence the bishops' prestige was involved. If they had admitted the justice of the complaints, the bishops would have been admitting a failure on their own part to carry out their prime mandate. And the prime mandate of a bishop is to preserve the deposit of faith and hand it on intact to the next generation. Such an attitude is a common phenomenon in public life and is not confined to bishops. In most cases, the bishops had simply presumed that their catechetical directors were doing a good job. One mother had been to see her own diocesan bishop to ask whether he really approved of a most inadequate syllabus was astonished when he confessed to her that he'd never actually got round to reading it. Now I know that our bishops have many things to concern them today. Peace and justice in all sorts of unlikely places, nuclear weapons, housing, unemployment, premises for Rastafarians to smoke their pot, <laughs> preserving the GLC. But I would like to suggest to them with all respect that perhaps the education of children in Catholic schools might be given just a little more prominence in their deliberations. Well, to cut a long story short, Corpus Christi College was eventually closed down. Cardinal Heenan had feared an avalanche of protest, but it didn't materialise. A few other notorious proponents of the new catechetics were removed from their positions, but in general, the present situation is pretty bleak. I might mention that most of the priests on what was described as my list of heretics have now left the priesthood and married, including Father Hubert Richards, the principal of Corpus Christi College, and Father Peter de Rosa, the vice principal. Cardinal Heenan had admitted to Father Telford that Father Richards no longer believed in the Trinity or the Incarnation in a Catholic sense. And yet Mr. Richards, as he now is, is still giving courses to Catholic priests under Catholic auspices. The graduates of Corpus Christi College are now in positions of influence throughout the country. 
I do not know of a single catechetical centre which is not firmly committed to the Corpus Christi line, and in general the situation in our schools worsens from year to year. Each year thousands of teachers who receive their training before the imposition of the new catechetics retire and are replaced by new ones who frankly do not have the remotest idea of what the Catholic faith is. In years gone by when I used to have students come to train in my class, but uh, our local training college had to close down, I had several of them gave up teaching religion because they said the children knew a lot more than they did. Uh, And they're the people who are coming in the schools to teach now. But there are, of course, exceptions to every generalization, and there are exceptions to this one. But overall, the gloomy picture I have given you is accurate. There is a vast vested interest in maintaining the current status quo. Publishers of catechetical texts are geared to the current approach. So are the training colleges and their staffs. The best description I have heard of the contemporary situation is that in the primary schools, the children learn nothing, and in the secondary schools, they have discussions on what they learned in the primary school. (laughs) (coughs) The emphasis of the new catechetics is that it must be child-centred, that is, man-centred. I have mentioned several times that the most evident change within the Church since Vatican II is a shifting of attention from God to man, from the next world to this world. Father John Flanagan wrote in 1968, It would be a very inobservant person indeed who would not notice in the post-conciliar Church the shift of emphasis from God to man, from moral evil to social evil, from theology to sociology, from scholasticism to the empty jargon of secularism and pseudo-progress. No one has summed it up better. See how this is reflected in the current philosophy of the Westminster Religious Education Centre. And this is the basis of, on which religious education is taught in the Archdiocese of Westminster. It makes little sense to proclaim religious truths unless they are based on the child's world and his experience. The doctrine of God is something which is grounded and anchored in man's multiple experience of life. The reality of God cannot be encountered apart from our experience of the world in which we live. This, of course, is sheer drivel. The nonsensical nature of this statement derives from a failure to distinguish between method and content. The method must be adopted as far as possible to the age and ability of the child. But the content of religious education must be what our Lord himself handed down. Are these people saying that our Lord's own teaching, the deposit of faith, is incomprehensible? Here is Father Telford's answer to those who use the child-centered approach as an excuse to deny Catholic children a knowledge of those Catholic truths to which the General Catechetical Directory states they are entitled. This is what Father Telford says. As far as method is concerned, we must begin from a consideration of the pupil's characteristics, intellectual, psychological, and the rest. But the danger is that the principles which are being applied, often commendably in changing method, can also gradually be applied to content. And this is simply not a valid transfer at all. Method can and should be child-centred. But the content of our catechesis cannot be child-centred. To limit the content to what the child is likely to be interested in, 
or to what is within the child's natural experience is to impose limitations upon the very God-given potentiality every child has to make response of faith under the enlightenment of grace. It would mean a tragic failure to lead children towards a faith that transcends natural experience. And, of course, all the great truths of our faith transcend natural experience. How can you look within the experience of a child to teach them that uh, during the Mass, bread and wine are actually changed in the body and blood of our Lord? I would like to stress in particular Father Telford's reference to the God-given potentiality every child has to make a response of faith under the enlightenment of grace. The new catechists fail to take into account the supernatural help given to Catholic children to accept and understand the faith which they receive with the grace of baptism. Father Telford is now Canon Telford. He's no longer director of the Southwark Catechetical Centre. He's no longer chairman of the Department of Catechetics. He resigned from these positions and resigned for a very sad reason. Canon Telford found that he was waging an almost single-handed fight for orthodoxy and that he was receiving no support whatsoever from the bishops as a body, although he had the private support of some bishops. He therefore deemed it pointless to continue what was clearly a hopeless struggle within the catechetical establishment. He wrote a long and detailed letter of resignation which he sent to every bishop and which had no effect whatsoever. It appeared in Christian order in April 1977. His conclusions are depressing, terrifying even, but they will indicate that my own gloomy assessment is not exaggerated. Here are his words. Modern catechetics is theologically corrupt and spiritually bankrupt. Its strictures and innovations are irrelevant and unmeaningful for the Catholic faith and can achieve nothing but its gradual dilution. The authentic renewal of catechesis will come not from them, but from the faithful. Theologically corrupt and spiritually bankrupt. That is the religious education being given to Catholic children in the generality of Catholic schools today. I cannot imagine any person better qualified than Canon Telford to make such an assessment. There are now some important voices conceding that all has not been well in the movement. Archbishop Winning of Glasgow admits that there are, and I quote, or there have been rather, a lot of bad experience in catechesis with untried theories being put into practice. RE has reached a low ebb. For a generation there was little to commend it in approach or content. The victims of that period are now young, adult, young adults, and they are deprived because of it. Well, what could be clearer than that? And the word victims is the best possible description of the poor Catholic children who are subjected to the new catechetics. But I cannot help noting that when these bad experiences which lasted a generation were taking place, Archbishop Winning remained silent or even defended the catechist responsible. He now claims that there has been a great improvement when in fact the situation is even worse. A far more important admission took place at a conference in Paris in January 1983. Archbishop Lustiger of Paris had invited a number of prelates to speak on the subject of catechetics, including Archbishop Ryan of Dublin and Cardinal Ratzinger, Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Dr. Ryan stated that, I quote, 
Experience in Ireland would seem to suggest that in spite of the fact that time, energy and money have been spent on the production of elaborate textbooks and tapes on the training of teachers of religion, many children can emerge from our primary schools without knowing the basic prayers and elements of the faith appropriate for their age. This is just what we had been saying for nearly 15 years. But the most important speech of this conference was given by Cardinal Ratzinger, whose special task is to watch over the purity of Catholic doctrine. I will not read you lengthy extracts from his speech. I've been talking for far too long already. I will try to summarize the principal points of his talk rather briefly. The Cardinal admitted candidly that there is a crisis in catechetics, that it had been a fundamental and grave mistake to suppress the catechism, that the method of teaching the faith had become to be considered as more important than the content of what was taught, that this resulted in the attitude that religion must be adapted to what is acceptable to man. You recollect what Father Flanagan said in 1968, Behind the rejection of the catechism and the collapse of traditional religious instruction lies a rejection of traditional Catholic dogma. The experience of the community becomes the ultimate criterion for deciding belief. In other words, the Cardinal is stating quite correctly that the fundamental axiom of the new catechetics is that we believe what it suits us to believe. The Cardinal has no hesitation in telling us where to discover what we must believe if we, wish to main, if we wish to remain true to the faith of our fathers. And his recommendation is one which will send every proponent of the new catechetic screaming to his psychoanalyst. The Cardinal tells us that the most important Catholic catechism is the Roman catechism published by St. Pius V after the Council of Trent which clearly expresses itself on the subject of the goal and content of catechesis. Well, what do you think about that? The solution of the catechetical crisis is a return to the doctrine of the catechism of the Council of Trent, the catechism of St. Pius V. And why? Cardinal Ratzinger has the answer. It gives us a catechetical structure whose core went right back to the beginnings of the church. In other words, it goes back to Jesus Christ, the divine teacher. Cardinal Ratzinger's lecture was, of course, almost totally ignored in the Catholic press. One might hope that one day, perhaps, too, the Cardinal will admit that the solution to the liturgical problem would be a return to the Mass of St. Pius V. I consider Cardinal Ratzinger's lecture to have been a total vindication of the efforts of all those who have been opposing the new catechetic since 1968. No longer can we be shrugged off as reactionary priests or ignorant laymen. This would be a dramatic point on which to conclude my own lecture, but realism demands that I return once more to the current situation, which is that the state of religious education in this country is worse than it has ever been, and that, as far as I can see, Cardinal Ratzinger's admonitions have been ignored by the catechetical establishment. What then must a concerned Catholic parent do? Two things. Firstly, we must not give up the fight to have orthodox teaching restored to our schools. Let me quote Father Paul Crane here. 
Catholic parents have the right and indeed the duty to see to it that their children are taught the truths of their religion. That says it all. How should they do this? They should do it by bringing their complaints to the attention of teachers, bishops, the apostolic delegate and the Holy See. Write to Cardinal Ratzinger and Cardinal Oddi, prefect for the Congregation for the Clergy. He is right behind us in the fight for orthodox in catechetics. I only wish that time had permitted me to quote him to you. Secondly, be sure that your complaints are factual. Don't rely on what your children tell you. Now, I give you this advice as a teacher and a parent. <laughs> Examine the school syllabus if you can get it. In most cases, there won't be one. <laughs> and the same goes for diocese. Uh, check through the textbooks. Use points from the Dutch Catechism, the pro analysis, as a checklist. Cardinal Wright, who was uh, Cardinal Oddi's predecessor as the prefect for the Sacred Congregation of the Clergy, made the following points concerning the General Catechetical Directory on, the, on which the pro analysis was based. The General, the General Catechetical Directory makes parents a control on the teacher, where the bishop may lack the time or the awareness of the need for such control. Our parents love their children, and they do not wish them to be taught nonsense, or to receive inadequate, incomplete, or vitiated presentations of the faith. The general catechetical directory has given them a means of control, and as I say, it's still available. If the doctrines which it says should be taught are not being taught, you have every justification for asking why. As Cardinal Wright expressed it, Catholic parents love their children and do not want them to be taught nonsense. But there is one document above all which you must own and quote from. It is called Catechesi Tridende and is an apostolic exhortation by Pope John Paul II. The English title is Catechesis in Our Time. You will find all the arguments I have been putting forward in this lecture contained there. The opinion of the Holy Father on method is exactly the same as that of Father Telford, and on content too. Let me quote him. And this is what the Pope himself says. The person who becomes a disciple of Christ has the right to receive the word of faith not in mutilated, falsified, or diminished form, but whole and entire, in all its rigor and vigor. Teachers must refuse to trouble the minds of children and young people with outlandish theories, useless questionings, and unproductive discussions. Pope John Paul II even quotes two sound sources to which we should go to discover what should be taught. They are the creator of Pope Paul VI and the general catechetical directory. While agreeing with Father Crane that it is our, that it is our right, and duty to fight for sound teaching in our schools, there remains the problem of what to do when we cannot obtain it. Cardinal Shaper, Cardinal Ratzinger's predecessor as prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, accepted that, in the present climate, many bishops are taking no notice of what Rome requires. This is what he said. Rome is too far away to cope with every scandal, and Rome is not well obeyed. If all the bishops would deal decisively with these aberrations as they occur, the situation would be very different. It is very difficult for us in Rome if we get no cooperation from the bishops. 
The only solution for a Catholic parent where his bishop would not cooperate with Rome and ensure that a syllabus based on the general catechetical directory is made mandatory for all his schools is to teach his own children. In many cases, alas, he may consider it prudent not to send his child to a Catholic school. This enables me to conclude on a very positive note. One of the practical initiatives which has emerged as a response to the present crisis has been the establishment of Catholic bookshops where only Orthodox literature is sold. The most notable of these is the Holy Cross bookshop in the improbable location of Catford, uh, where I lived for many years which now has in stock excellent books for Catholic children of all ages, including systematic courses of religious instruction. I'd be glad to provide the address for anyone interested. These have become available only within the last year. This, then, you will all be relieved to know, brings me to the conclusion of my lecture. I'm sorry that it has been so long, but I must prolong it for just a few more moments. You may have noted that I have not yet answered the question posed in the title. I have not yet expressed my opinion as to whether the catechetical revolution has been a blessing or a disaster. Uh, Sherlock Holmes would have deduced my answer by now, and I think Dr. Watson might have managed it. But before confirming your conclusion for you, I will read you one more quotation from Canon Telford. This is what Canon Telford said. What would our martyrs afford of the faith which is preached and practiced by many ardent renewalists today? A faith in which leading catechists tell us to instruct their children that the Mass is Jesus' jolly tea party. A faith in which leading liturgists invite an adult congregation to hop, skip and jump around the altar as a meaningful thanksgiving at the end of Mass. A faith in which leading theologians reject solemn declarations of the Holy Father because the matter is still under discussion. All these aberrations I have personally witnessed, and many more. How would our martyrs have reacted if they had known how, in the 20th century, that Catholic doctrine would be secularized and Catholic liturgy trivialized? Well, I think that the reaction of our martyrs would have been that what has taken place has been a disaster, and that is my conclusion too. The catechetical revolution has been a disaster.